0: morning everyone for those that don't know me i'm Shes, and i'll be doing the bible reading this morning for anyone that's following in the church bibles can you please tune to page 1161 and it's taken from uh, corinthians 2 corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 to 10 for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed we have a building from god an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord, so that we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I'm now going to
1: hand it over to Jonathan. Thank you, Jess. Uh, good morning, everybody. Please keep that passage open. Uh, Matt has already prayed for us, so we're going to get uh, straight into looking at this together. If you were to draw up a, a list of a hundred things to do or see before you die, I wonder what you would include. Uh, You'll certainly find no shortage of advice out there on uh, various websites and books and blogs and podcasts. So on the uh, Real Buzz website, number one must do is swim with dolphins, followed by walk the Great Wall of China, dive with sharks, run the London Marathon, and visit Petra in Jordan. Uh, Sadly, out of their top five, the most affordable one is the one I'd least like to do. And uh, if I even attempt running a marathon, I guess that would be the last thing I do before I die. But what if we turn the question on its head? What would make your top 100 list of things you look forward to doing or seeing after you die? Could you think of 100 things, or 50, or even 10? For some here, I imagine that we're not really sure what will happen when we die. I imagine we're not um, wonder whether we might just simply stop existing. Um, Do the lights go out? Or is there an afterlife with a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided? Or will I be reincarnated? Reach the full enlightenment of nirvana, maybe? Well, in our passage today, Paul helps us to get a Christian view of death. And if we take his teaching seriously, it should challenge this uh, bucket list mentality of focusing on all the things I want to do before I die. This idea that I only get one short life, so I really must pack in as many amazing experiences as I can possibly manage or afford. Because the Christian understanding of death is countercultural. The Bible teaches us that these few years I live on earth are not all that I have, that the believer in Jesus is here on a temporary assignment and that the best is yet to be. Paul puts it like this back in his first letter to Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so in our passage, verse 9, he says, we make it our goal to please him. That is Jesus. Here's the one thing to do before you die. Make it your goal to please Jesus. Well, let's get into the detail of this Christian perspective of death and see how we ought to live in the light of it. Firstly, we're going to look at these verses uh, 1 to 5 under the heading, We live in a tent, but long for a house. We live in a tent, but long for a house. I don't know what your relationship is with tents and camping. Uh, Some of us might love it. Many more of us, I suspect, not so much. I can think of one time in my life where I chose a tent uh, as a preference, and that was only because the alternative was to be in a cramped caravan with my mum, dad, my sister, a Labrador dog, two Siamese cats, and four kittens. I won't bore you with a long story, but believe me, when that is the situation, uh, a cramped one-man tent is definitely the luxury option. But generally, I will always choose a nice comfy bed in a Premier Inn any day over camping. And here, Paul uses this same kind of idea to illustrate life in our earthly bodies now compared to future life in our resurrection bodies. So look with me, please, at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in, our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, the four links this back to what you looked at two weeks ago, where Paul was urging us to remember that for the believer in Jesus, whatever difficulties, hardships, and struggles we may face in our mortal bodies that are wasting away, they will be far outweighed by the eternal glory to come. And so final verse of chapter four, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Paul now develops this theme of seen and unseen, temporary and eternal. And he wants believers in Jesus to understand firstly under this initial heading that God has built us an eternal house. God has built us an eternal house. Notice he compares our earthly bodies to a temporary tent and our heavenly bodies, and I'm convinced that's what he means here, to an eternal house in heaven. Now this is fascinating Because we tend to think, don't we, of our present bodies as being pretty solid. Well, maybe a bit squidgy in places, but generally we think of our earthly bodies as solid flesh and bones. And we tend to think, don't we, that our resurrection body will be somehow less real, floaty and fluffy. But Paul is saying, no, no, it's quite the opposite. Your present body is rather like a temporary tent, like a piece of canvas, held up by a few poles, secured with some tent pegs, flapping away in the wind, all rather insecure and uncomfortable. And the body God has prepared for Christians in the future, well, that is more real. Like an unshakable, permanent, comfortable house built on a solid foundation. And notice the emphasis at the end of verse 1 that this is not built by human hands. Over these last two weeks, we've... Seen the tragedy unfold, haven't we, of the two earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. Devastating destruction. Almost unimaginable loss of life. In many cases, it seems that constructors failed to comply with building regulations so that in some streets, one building stood and another was completely flattened. But you know, there is no danger of poor workmanship with the Christian's resurrection body because it is not built by human hands. In fact, such is the indestructible power and divine vitality of the heavenly dwelling that our mortal bodies will, end of verse 4, be swallowed up by life. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? What is temporary, wasting away, will be hungrily devoured by what is permanently and vibrantly alive. But of course, verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. You see, Paul's desire is not to be free of a body completely, what he calls naked. That kind of thinking was current in Corinth, that the body is evil or an annoyance, and that only what is spiritual is truly good. So that then, of course, the goal would become to be a disembodied spirit, free from all frustrations and limitations of a body. But no, that is not biblical thinking. A few weeks ago in our evening series, we were learning that the body is in essence good. God created us body, soul, and spirit. And our groaning and our bodily suffering and weaknesses all a result ultimately of the fall and the Genesis 3 curse. As Paul writes elsewhere, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. The Christian goal and hope is not to float around on clouds as spiritual beings with no bodies. No, verse 4, we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We look forward to a better body, a perfect, redeemed or rescued body. One that no longer aches or creaks or deteriorates or fails us. And I'm already at that age where that is beginning to happen. And I don't like it. And for some of you, I know that that groaning is very real, very present, very painful. You may be especially aware of the physical or mental limitations of your present earthly tent, and so you really know what it is to groan and long for your heavenly dwelling. Well, please be encouraged, because the Spirit of Jesus within you groans along with you and shares in that heavenly longing. But, you know, to one degree or another, we all groan and long for the redemption of our bodies, even if we don't always recognize it. That's why anti-aging and anti-wrinkle creams are so popular. So I'm told. (laughs) That's why many people spend hours at the gym or out running or cycling every week. Because besides wanting to look good we want to try and preserve or improve the health of our bodies. We want to make them last longer, keep the inevitable groaning of old rage at bay for as long as we possibly can. And while, of course, it is important to look after our bodies, there is also a danger. We can fall into the trap of forgetting that this life is not all that there is. Even Christians can get drawn into that way of thinking. And if you do that, you know what will happen? You'll begin to devote your life to trying to turn your tent Into a building. Try to make what God intends to be temporary as something permanent, and it can enslave you. It can distract you from the building God has prepared for you in heaven. So, for all those trusting in Jesus this morning, and those who will trust in Jesus, God has built us an eternal house in heaven. And then, secondly, under this initial heading, God has put down a deposit. Look with me, please, at verse 5. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know, this desire for something better, something permanent, that will never age or decay, it is built into the human psyche. Our Creator has fashioned us or designed us for this very purpose. Or as Ephesians 3 verse 11 puts it, God has set eternity in the human heart. We were not originally created to die after 70, 80 years or so, but rather to live forever. And each of us, I think, knows that and feels that deep down, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, The filmmakers know it too. Uh, Last weekend, I took my uh, godsons, Jonathan and Toby, to watch the film uh, Avatar, The Way of the Water. Uh, The heart of the story is this uh, whale-like creature called a, a tulkan. And uh, he is hunted for a liquid that is called Amrita, which has to be horrifically extracted from the creature's brain. But the Resources Development Administration are willing to sacrifice these Tolkien creatures because they know that this serum can basically stop human aging. Now, of course, it's complete fantasy, but it's a great film, and it plays into this inbuilt human desire for immortality what is not fantasy is that the God who has fashioned us for immortality, he has actually provided for it. Not with an anti-aging serum, but through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on a cross. And to everyone here who puts their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God gives his Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So not only has God built us an eternal house, he's also put down a deposit on that house i'm sure most of us can relate to this idea of a deposit whether you're part of generation rent or whether you have the privilege of owning your own home deposits are always part of the deal aren't they if you want to rent somewhere the landlord will demand a deposit against damages If you're buying a place with a mortgage you have to give the the bank or the building society deposit or the um, seller solicitor will demand a deposit at exchange of contracts but of course although tenancy agreements, mortgage agreements, contracts are all legally binding, putting down a deposit does not actually give you a 100% cast iron guarantee that the deal will go through. Uh, apologies here if you're waiting for a deal to complete or, or <laughs> hoping to secure a rental property. I don't want to kind of add to your worry, but that is the reality, isn't it? There's no guarantee. It's only when you finally pick up the keys and step across the threshold that you can know beyond all doubt that the deal is done. Not so with our eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. No waiting until you die to be sure that the deal is done. No, the very moment that you put your trust in Jesus and acknowledge him as your personal savior and Lord, you receive the keys to eternal life. And don't take that from me. Take it rather from the lips of Jesus. John 5, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has... Present tense, eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over, past tense, to done deal, from death to life. And at the moment you believe, God gives you his Holy Spirit as a deposit, who then becomes a permanent, never to be evicted, resident within the earthly tent of your body. He is the absolute, unbreakable guarantee from the covenant-keeping God. The one who has never and will never break a single one of his promises. Which means that even if you go through many trials and temptations in your earthly tent, you will make it to your eternal house in heaven. Isn't that good news? Isn't it great news? So the Christian view of death is that we live in a tent but long for a house. And then secondly, verses 6 to 10, that we live by faith, not by sight. This knowledge that God has built for us an eternal house and given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, this should all lead to the Christian being confident, super confident. That's certainly the Apostle Paul's experience. So verse 6, therefore, in light of our eternal house in heaven, guaranteed by the deposit of the spirit, therefore, we are always confident. And in case we miss the point, like every good teacher, he repeats himself in verse 8. We are confident, I say. And what is the basis of this confidence? Confidence. Verse 7, for because we live by faith, not by sight. Now, again, let's not miss how countercultural and counterintuitive this is. Because we tend to be confident based on what we see, don't we? Or based on what we smell, or, or taste, or touch. So imagine the fire alarm was to go off here in the church this morning. You might wonder, well, is this a planned fire practice? And you might hesitate to leave the building. Imagine, though, if you were to start smelling smoke, feeling the heat of flames, and then you see a fire crew come in, and they've got their hoses, and they start just splashing water all over the place. I guess you might think, wow, the preacher's really on fire this morning, or you might more wisely think, I need to evacuate and get out of here as soon as possible. But you see, that's to live by sight, not by faith. The person who lives by faith hears the fire alarm and takes appropriate action. And, you know, that is not unlike Christian faith. It's not blind faith. It's not just a leap in the dark and hope for the best. No, it's faith based on hearing the word of God and taking appropriate action. Hearing the eyewitness accounts about God's chosen Savior, Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do, and how I should respond to him if I want that guarantee of an eternal house in heaven. Some people say, well, if only I could see Jesus in the flesh, then I would believe. But no, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And as we hear the word about Christ, as we take it to heart, as we learn to live by faith, not by sight, well, it should make us firstly confident about death. What are you so confident about, Paul? Well, we know, verse 6, that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And verse 8, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know, the Christian has two homes. We have a temporary residence, what Paul describes as being in the body, or what he called the earthly tent we live in, back in verse 1. But our permanent home is with the Lord, or what Paul described in verse 2 as being clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Now, I think many of our international friends will possibly understand this much better than those of us who were born and brought up here in the UK. Some of you have fled from persecution or war in your own countries and found refuge here at Above Bar Church in Southampton. And let me say, we love having you here. We as a church are richly blessed and so privileged that God should entrust you to our care in your great time of need. But I know, of course, that many of you are hoping that this will only be a temporary residence because you desperately long to be back in your permanent residence, whether that's Ukraine or Iran or wherever it may be. You want to be back home. You long to be back in those familiar surroundings, to be reunited with family and friends. Well, you know, that is the picture Paul paints of what it's like to be a Christian. Every Christian is like a stranger in a foreign land. We live in this world on a temporary visa and in a flimsy tent. And the more I grow as a believer, the more I should experience this sense of longing to be in my permanent home with the Lord. That's true whether you think you have your whole life ahead of you, or you know you're in your twilight years or you're somewhere in between. If you're a believer in Jesus, there ought to be some sense that you would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, and a growing sense that death is not something to be feared or delayed at all costs, but rather it is the gateway to glory, to the eternal life for which God has fashioned you. That's not to say, of course, that we'll look forward to the process of dying. I certainly don't. I've prayed several times in my Christian life that whenever God decides to take me home, it will be quick. Death itself can be painful, traumatic, distressing, not least For our loved ones who may have to watch us die. But you know, brothers and sisters, to die is to go and be with the Lord. Which is better by far. It's to leave this earthly tent behind. And yes, to be unclothed for a while. And yet to be in the immediate presence of Jesus. What does Jesus say to the criminal on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. So we live by faith, not by sight. And as we do that, it will lead to us being confident about death. And then finally, it should motivate us and fire us up to be purposeful in life. Purposeful in life. Verse 9. So, in the light of this eternal perspective, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Most of us, I guess, are very familiar with this idea of setting goals, whether it's personal life goals or goals you might set with your line manager at work and an annual review. It's a good thing to do, because without clearly defined goals, we won't really know what we're aiming at in life or in work. But for the Christian, there is a much higher and much more significant goal, one that trumps every personal life goal and every work-related goal. Indeed, one that really should inform all our other goals and transform them, perhaps. We make it our goal to please him, the Lord Jesus Christ. To please him in every area of life, family, studies, work, church, relationships, leisure, in the use of our time and our God-given gifts and our resources and our talents, we make it our goal to please him. Now, of course, when I'm away from my present body and at home with the Lord in my resurrection body, pleasing him will be the most natural thing in the world. We've already sung, we'll be like him will be made perfect. I'll hit the target every time. But while I'm in my earthly tent, it will be a huge struggle at times because my old sinful nature will desire what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit within me will desire what is contrary to my old sinful nature. It's another reason why we groan and long for our heavenly dwelling because then there will be no more struggle with sin, no more temptation, no more missing the target, no more failing to please Jesus. And in the meantime, the great news is Contrary to what some of us were taught as we grew up, Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. Unlike some of our bosses or our spouses, our family members, our friends, our social networks, Jesus is not hard to please. Indeed, to those who are weary and burdened by desperately trying to please others and keep everybody else happy, trying to please God perhaps by working really hard to get into his good books, earn my salvation, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice though there is another motivation to please Jesus in this life. Why do we make it our goal to please him? Verse 10, for because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now here is something that we don't talk about much today. The judgment that Christians will face. And let's be clear, this is not referring to the judgment that determines my eternal destiny. No, that judgment is based exclusively on the things that Jesus did while in his body on earth, which without exception were all good. He lived a perfect life. And he died a blameless death. And because his body was hung on a tree, the punishment, the curse that brought us peace has been laid on him. So if you put your trust in Jesus, and you know you can do that even today, even in the quietness of your own heart this morning, you can put your trust in Jesus. And if you do that, well, the verdict on your life, the eternal verdict, will be a guaranteed not guilty. So that when you die, you'll be welcomed home And we'll go to be with the Lord. But although the Bible doesn't give us a huge amount of detail, it does speak of another judgment. Every Christian, completely secure in eternal terms, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account before him of what we've done while in this earthly tent, good or bad. And back in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says the quality of our Christian deeds will be tested by fire. If what we've built survives, we'll receive a reward. But if it is burned up, we will suffer loss, yet we'll be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Well, there's clearly a lot of mystery there, and a lot that we're not told. But one thing for me is clear when I read that. I don't want to be in that position before the judgment seat of Christ, being saved as one escaping through flames. So let's pray for ourselves and pray for one another that here at Above Bar Church, the Spirit of God will so empower us that in response to God's amazing grace in rescuing us, saving us, giving us this eternal home, we will devote our whole lives to doing many good things while in this earthly tent. And can I say, if you do have a bucket list of things to do before you die, can I encourage you to scrub out what, ever may be number one on that list, and replace it with this. My number one goal before I die is to please Jesus. And for those who don't have such a list, well, may the Holy Spirit engrave that perhaps on our hearts this morning. And if you want a simple prayer to pray in pursuit of that goal, well, you know, you could do a lot worse than the words of this old hymn. May the word, may the mind of Christ, my savior, live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Why don't we pray that together now for one another, for ourselves? Father, thank you for this amazing passage of scripture. Thank you that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, if we're trusting in Jesus, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Oh, Lord, for each and every one of us this morning who already trusts in Jesus, and for those, Lord, not yet trusting in him, oh, Lord, please, may you so work by your spirit that you bring them to faith so that each of us here, Lord, may have the mind of Christ our Savior living in us from day to day by his love and power controlling all that we do and say. We ask this for his glory. Amen.